You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 6. Last week, uh, we finished up a set of sermons called Issues, where, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, we finished up a set of sermons called Issues where we have taken a variety of things that we haven't been able to preach on lately, and we just spent some time working through some some of those issues. Many of them are very complicated, hard issues to deal with, and so thank you for the grace of of kind of working through those things with us over the last several months. Um, But today we are starting a new set of sermons that we are calling Teach Us to Pray. We're going to spend six weeks, really the last six weeks of this year, um, working through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, Luke chapter 11. It's in both places. It's retaught in Luke 11. We're going to be primarily in Matthew chapter 6. So with that, I want to start just by giving a couple of reasons why we're doing a set of sermons through the Lord's Prayer. Why would we spend six weeks as a church family thinking through uh, this particular passage? Two quick reasons. Reason number one is when I talk to people who are following Jesus, so if that's you in the room, if there's some sort of like a following of Jesus, a desire for that in your life, that one of the consistent themes that I hear in people's lives, and it's in me too, so this is, I think this is us, it's an us thing in, in the room, is that we all want to grow in our prayer life. We, we want to pray more often, and we want to pray more effectively. I just don't meet many people who think or say, man, I'm just killing it right now in my prayer life. You just wouldn't believe how great it is. I just don't meet many people who think and and feel that way about their prayer life. Most people that I bump into and we talk about prayer are on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're sitting in a position of saying, man, I so desperately want to grow and want to develop in this area. And hear me on this. It is crucial that we're doing that, that we're actually growing in our prayer life. You know, when you think about prayer and, and the way you pray your life with God through prayer, communing with God through prayer, those sort of things, I, I think your, your prayer life, in particular, your private prayer life, is one of the greatest tests of the legitimacy of our faith. Like, do we really love God or not? I think is primarily seen in, one of the best places you can go to kind of get a sense of that, is to look at your private prayer life. I love what Robert Murray McShane said. He said, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. And for many of us, that should strike like a chord in us. Like, man, we probably ought to think about what it means to grow in our life with God, in particular, our private life with God. So our prayer life is, is intimately connected to a genuine faith, that the, the real thing being in us. Our prayer life is also deeply connected to our spiritual vitality. If we wanted to kind of think through in, in the people in this room, my life, your life, what does their walk with God look like? What does their spiritual vitality look like in their life? We could park that question and take a look at what does their private prayer life look like? And in seeing what their private prayer life looks like, we could make all sorts of right conclusions about their spiritual vitality. That when our prayer life, our private prayer life is suffering, Our spiritual vitality is going to be suffering. These two are on, like, they're directly related. When one is good, the other is good. When one is poor, the other is poor. So it's deeply connected to our spiritual vitality. And and lastly, when you think about why is it that we would want to grow in our our prayer life, 
our prayer life is also deeply connected to the work of Jesus through us and around us. It's deeply connected to what it is the Lord's doing in us and through us. You know, it, it, is, it has taken me a long time to believe this, but I am growing more and more to believe that, that my prayer work, the, the, the work that I do in prayer is the most important work that I do as a husband, as a daddy, and as a pastor. It's the most important work that I do. Now, it, it's been interesting for me just to kind of see the long journey of that. I mean, this has been a really winding road to kind of, kind of step into that belief. And one of the things that has been interesting for me to kind of get a sense of over time is... Uh, you know, I didn't grow up in like a ministry family, so I didn't have like a mom, dad, uh, whatever in ministry. So I'm kind of the first generation pastor in our family. And it's funny for me to look at what I assumed about pastors before I was a pastor. And here is one of the assumptions that I felt about pastors is I'm sure I would assume that they pray a lot. I mean, what else do they have to do? They're pastors. I mean, I'm just assuming that there is a lot of prayer going on in a pastor's life. And now that I'm on the other side, it's been a really ironic thing to see that that's not true for the life of most pastors. That in the life of most pastors, prayer is a very neglected discipline. It's a very neglected habit. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that prayer never feels like the most urgent thing, does it? I mean, think about in your own life. Does it ever, like when, when like push comes to shove and like something's gotta happen, does it ever feel like, I'm gonna take a, a moment to pray about this. Does that ever feel like the most effective use of your time? It never on the surface feels like that to me. And, and welcome back into this idea of like, prayer is the most foundational work we do. It's, it's the most important work we do as pastors, as, as dads, as, as husbands, it's the most important work in my life is prayer work. But the Lord has to remind us of that, convince us of that. I love how Andrew Murray says it. He says, prayer is the highest part of the work entrusted to us. It's the root and strength of all other work. In other words, the Lord is gonna call us to do many other things other, you know, besides prayer. There's gonna be a lot of things like mission and evangelism, like getting into community, like all of these things the Lord's gonna call us to do. But at the foundation of those things, what animates and motivates and enables those things is a life of prayer. It's deeply connected to how the Lord wants to use us in this world. Prayer, it's very crucial that we're growing in our prayer life. Now, when it comes to pastors neglecting prayer, I'm just convinced that because prayer never feels urgent to a pastor, it never feels urgent to, to you, to people, um, that this is an area that we all need to grow. That it's not just that pastors neglect prayer life, it's that all of us have a tendency to neglect our prayer life. I, I agree with how one pastor put it when he said, for many Christians, the secret life of prayer is a source of secret shame. That if we were just to say, hey, spell out for us, kind of walk us through what your private prayer life looks like, many of us would not want to talk about that for very long. And this is going to be an invitation from the Lord over the next several weeks for us to grow in that, to figure out what next steps would be needed for us to grow up in our prayer life. What, what next steps would be needed for spiritual vitality around prayer to be happening in our life. So that's reason number one. We all want to pray more often and more effectively. Reason number two for this set of sermons is that the Lord's prayer has been at the core of Christian equipping that it has embedded into it things that every Christian needs to know. See, when you look back over the last 2,000 years of Christian history, there have been three primary tools that the church has used, three, three primary things that the church has used to do the core level of equipping among, uh, you know, among Christians. Here are the three things. One is the Apostles' Creed. 
it is kind of the summary statement of what is, you know, evangelical belief. Like, what does it mean to take the Bible seriously? It's kind of the, the summary statement of what are we to believe as Christians? That's the Apostles' Creed. What are we to believe? Then you take the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are how are we to behave as Christians? So if we want to honor God and, and we want to pursue holiness in our life, what does that look like? The Ten Commandments shape the behavior of a Christian. And then you get to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is showing us what does it mean to commune with God, to know God. It's showing us what does that look like? What does it mean to commune and, and know God? There's a lot of places in the Bible where you can go to learn about prayer. But there is no place in the Bible that you can go to get a concise and comprehensive teaching on prayer like the Lord's Prayer. I love what the old Puritan Thomas Watson said. He said, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, this prayer is a heap of massive gold. Man, I hope that's the way you'll, you'll pursue and kind of look at this passage over the next six weeks. Is that this is gold that the Lord is saying, will you please take some of this, live with some of this, have some of this, will you please do that? This is gold in the Bible. Now, when it comes to the equipping of this passage, it also needs to be personally applied to your life. So don't just think about this in an abstract, you know, theoretical sense over there of prayer. This is a prayer that needs to be practically applied to your life and my life. This prayer has a way of sorting us out. I, I don't know if you feel this about your own heart. I feel it with my heart. My heart is so prone to wonder. I, I mean, it's like I just neglect thinking and kind of keeping track of my heart for a moment. And it takes a right turn down a road that I don't want it to go down. I mean, have you noticed how prone your heart is to feel wrongly about things? I mean, how quickly it will lead you astray in the way that you feel? How quickly your heart is to think wrongly about something? That as you're interpreting something, you're just interpreting it and thinking about it all wrong. Our hearts are so prone to that. Our hearts are so prone to want the wrong thing. I mean, do you know that about your heart? I feel that all the time in my heart that it's thinking wrongly, feeling wrongly, wanting wrongly. It's doing all those things wrongly. And the Lord's Prayer has a way of sorting out all of those wrong things in our heart, of addressing all of those wrong things in our heart. Let's just play this game for a minute. Let's allow the Lord to ask questions to us and then for the Lord's Prayer to be the answer to those questions. And, and these, are, these are questions and answers that we need to be sorted out for our heart to, to get off of that wrong turn and back onto the, to the right street. So let's just allow the Lord to ask questions and then them be answered in this prayer. Question number one, just imagine the Lord looking at you and asking this question. Who do you take me for and, and what am I to you? Like, who, who do you think I am to you? Like, who, who do you take me for and what am I? Answer, here's who you are. You're our Father in heaven. We all need a daily reminder of that. Here's who we're praying for. Here's who we take you to be, God. We take you to be our Father who's in heaven. Question number two. That being so, what is it that you really want most? So just picture the Lord saying, okay, so that's who I am. Now, just that being said, this is who I am. What is it that your heart really, really wants the most? Now that is a massively important question for every one of us in the room because most of us in the room want lesser things the most. And one of the most important things that we can, all of us in the room can do is figure out what is most important and then want that most important thing the most. 
That, that is a foundation. Like if you wanna, if you wanna live well for Jesus, this is what it looks like. What's the most important thing? And let's get about living for that, desiring that, wanting that. So he's asking a very important question. That being so, what is it that you really, really want? Answer, for your name to be hallowed, for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know how many problems would be solved in our life right now if our hearts really wanted that the most? So many of the things that we are so worried about right now would fade into the distant background if that's what we wanted the most. Our hearts need to be reminded of that. This is, this is the most important thing, so want that the most. Question number three. So what are you asking for right now as a means to that end? If you really want the, the name of the Lord to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, what are you asking right now as a means to that end? Answer in the Lord's prayer. Provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Pardon. Forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Protection and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's saying, ask those things. That should shape our asking of God. Then question number four, how can you be so bold and confident in asking for these things? How can you really know that God's gonna come through on these things? How, how can you know that? Answer, because yours, God, is the kingdom. It's the power and it's the glory forever and ever, amen. That's how we can know that you have the strength and the power to answer these prayers that we're praying. So you see a way of sorting us out as we personally apply it to our life? Our hearts need to be reminded of those four questions and those four answers every day of our life or we're gonna consistently find our heart taking these right and these left turns. Now, with that said, I wanna to begin to work through the Lord's Prayer. So I'm gonna read it again for us and then we're gonna take our first step today. So here it is again, Matthew chapter six, verses nine through 13. We're gonna deal with the context in future sermons this week, I want to just take the first small step. Jesus says this, pray then like this. How, Jesus? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We want to take the first step this morning in dealing with the first four words of this prayer. Our Father in heaven. They form the foundation of prayer life. The foundation of a praying life is built on these two phrases. Point one, our Father. Point two, in heaven. It's these two stones laid down as the foundation for prayer that enables a vital life of communing with God. Our Father on one hand, stone one, in heaven on the other hand, stone two. That, that's our foundation. So point one, our Father. You know, it, it is so interesting just to consider this, that when Jesus is gonna teach on prayer, the first thing he does is not to give all the X's and O's about what you're gonna pray for, how you're gonna pray, all it. He, he's not an X's and O's guy first. The first thing he does is remind us of the best news that has ever been spoken to us, our Father. Now, it's interesting kind of throughout this passage that you see the word Father mentioned six times. 
Jesus is making a very clear point. He is wanting us to remember the foundational element that if we're ever going to pray like the Lord wants us to pray, the most important thing that we need to know is not the X's and O's of prayer. The most important thing we have to know is who we are and who God is. That's the most important thing we have to know. We have to know what is the most important pronouncement that has ever been pronounced over our life. And here it is. God is our father and we are his children. There is nothing that has ever been said about you that is more important than that. There is nothing that is more meaningful in your life than those words. God is our father, we are his kids. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson describe the importance of this. We're kids, God's our father through Jesus. Listen to him describe this. He says, the notion that we are children of God the notion that we are his own sons and daughters. This notion that we're children of God lies at the heart of all Christian theology and is the mainspring of all Christian living. So he's saying, if you wouldn't know what is at the center of the good news of Jesus, there are so many things that we can talk about that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's saying, if you wouldn't know what is at the center of it, what is the best of the best news, here it is. God's our father and we're his kids. And he says, it's in knowing that, 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 that reality, God's our father, we're his kids, that is the mainspring of everything that happens in our life with God. It is believing that and knowing that that enables and animates everything we wanna see happen in our life with God, including our prayer life. It is the mainspring. It is the paradigm through which a follower of Jesus should see his life. The paradigm is this, I'm God's kid. He's my daddy. I've got a daddy, his name's God. I'm his son, I'm his daughter. That is the paradigm through which we should see our life. It's the lens through which we should see everything else in our life. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, if you wanna know how well a person understands Christianity, it's just really simple. Here's how simple it is. All you need to know is how much he makes of the thought of God being his father. See, it lies right at the center of everything we want to see happen in our life with God including our prayer life. So let's just consider the question. What is it that this first two words of the Lord's Prayer reminds us of? When we say our Father, what should those two words be reminding us of, assuring us of? I mean, sitting in the room right now, we just hear Jesus say, here's how you pray. You pray like this, start it like this, our Father. When we hear those words come out of our mouth, what should those words be producing in us? What sort of assurances should they be convincing us of? Let me just run through five really briefly. Here are the things, and this is just a sampling. We could talk about this, uh, you know, it could be a whole set of sermons in and of itself. So here's just a sampling of five things that it should be reminding us of, convincing us of when we say our Father. It should be reminding us and assuring us of God's love that God really does love us. It is no stretch to say that in roughly 15 years of doing pastoral ministry, the biggest problem that, that, that I face across the table with the person as we're trying to help them sort through whatever situation they're going through in their life, the biggest problem that we are consistently dealing with in them and for that matter, in my own heart, the biggest problem over the last 15 years in my own heart has been this, really believing that God loves us. Now, that, that would probably be a good thought for you just to kind of tease out and think about in your own heart. It's the biggest, I'll guarantee it's the biggest problem that you have. Really believing, mess and all, God loves you. The, the biggest problem we have is we really feel like 
God just sort of tolerates us. That, that we're very suspicious that, could God really love me? There's no way, maybe then, but no way he could really love me. One of the biggest problems that everyone in this room has is we feel like deep down we are living under the frown of God. And part of what the doctrine of adoption is trying to teach us is that we do not live under the frown of God if we're in Christ. We live under the smile of God, that God really, really does love us. Not just loves us, but loves loving us. It's trying to convince us of that. If you were here last week, uh, we did a panel at the end of our uh, sermon on orphan care. And just letting some people, Jimmy and Kelly were one of them, uh, a couple just that are pursuing orphan care and adoption, and just kind of talking through some of the ins and outs of what that journey has been like for them. And one of the questions that Jessica Wiseman asked Jimmy last week was, how has the, you know, the thought of God as Father, these sort of things, grown in you as you have pursued adoption? And, uh, and, and I don't know if you remember Jimmy's response, but he basically said that one of my perennial problems, one of the constant kind of foes that I battle in my life is just not really feeling like God loves me. I mean, feeling like that the, the Lord just kind of has that, that sort of frown over his face as he thinks about me. And, and Jimmy said last week that the death knell to that feeling has been the doctrine of adoption, knowing that God's his father, that, that he is God's son. That has been the death knell. That's been the most useful tool in fighting that feeling that God's just not very pleased with him. And listen, that's what the doctrine of adoption should be doing in all of our lives. When we say our father, we are reminding ourselves of the sort of relationship we have with God. And here's the relationship. It's not of one of tolerance. It's not one of displeasure. It is one in which God really, really, really does like us. Can you just, can you just, and just feel that for a second? Just internalize that for a second? Like just, just hear this. If you're in Christ, God likes you. I mean, he actually, he, he likes you. He, feel, he looks at you and thinks, that's a good hang. I want to hang with them more. I like spending time with them. I want to do that more. I love them. See, I, I love in John chapter 17, we overhear God the Son, Jesus, talking to God the Father. And in John 17, we overhear the conversation as it goes like this. As Jesus communicates to God the Father, he says, Father, <clears throat> you have loved them. Your adopted sons and daughters. You have loved them, Christians. You have loved them, those who have put their faith in me. You love them even as you loved me. That's one of those passages in the Bible where after you read it, you need to close your Bible and just sit there for a minute. Jesus is saying, just like the father's heart would leap for joy at the thought of me, his beloved son, Jesus is trying to convince us in this moment that God the Father's heart leaps for joy when it thinks of you. All of those in Christ. That is how God the Father thinks about you. He loves you like that, just like his beloved son. Is that not mind-blowing just to think about that? that I, mean, I can see God the Father's heart being really overjoyed at God the Son, loving him in a really deep, intense, personal, and particular way. It is so much harder for, for me to think about God loving me that way. And Jesus is saying, that's it. That is how he loves you. See, when you say the words, our father, it should be convincing us in the deepest of ways that God doesn't just tolerate us, but he loves us. Like really does love us. It assures us of his love. Secondly, it assures us of access. 
it assures us that we have access to God, that we can talk to God anytime we want. We don't need another person to be there to talk to God. We don't need a service. To talk. We can talk to God whenever we want. It assures us of access. In Luke 11, this is the other place where Jesus is basically reteaching the Lord's Prayer. After he reteaches it in Luke 11, he goes immediately into this uh, kind of this story, this parable of, uh, of this man who needs something. He's in desperate need for food, for bread. And so all he knows to do is go and knock on his neighbor's door until his neighbor will, you know, gets up. His neighbor is annoyed. He doesn't want to get up. But finally, it says that the man will get up and give the friend what he asked for because of his friends, his neighbor's persistence. He just, he just won't stop beating on the door. He just keeps doing it until the guy inside laying down to sleep gets up and gives him what he needs. Now, commentators are really quick to pick up that uh, that word persistence is probably better translated shamelessness. That it's because of his shamelessness that he gets up. Now, what's the point? What's considered boldness or shamelessness in how a friend or a neighbor might operate with you is very natural for a child. Like it, it is shameless for a neighbor to beat down the door for, you know, for bread at 3 a.m. in the morning. But it's not shameless for a kid to do that. See, the point of the, the passage is, is Jesus is saying, you have a fundamentally distinct relationship with God. It is not one of neighbor. It is one of father and son. It's not just one of friendship. It is one of kind of this familial sort of father-son, father-daughter relationship. He's saying that the way you can approach God is distinct from every other relationship in your life. It's distinct. I, I heard one guy illustrate it like this. He's just talking about that, like, Think of the president of the United States of America. And think about a moment where a, a, a guy starts banging on the White House doors. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. He's banging on the White House doors. And finally, the president gets up and the guy says, man, I'm so thirsty. I need a glass of water. Do you have one? Extra bottle of water anywhere around here. Now, what would you instantly be thinking in that moment? This guy has lost his mind. This guy is ridiculous. He does not know his boundaries. This guy's got screws loose that need to be tightened down or he's going to get killed. That's what we would be thinking. But picture the same scene. Picture the president's daughter banging on that door at 3 a.m. He opens the door. He's thinking somebody better be shot or killed. Something big better be. And all of a sudden she looks up and says, I, I'm thirsty. Like any good dad, what's he going to do? I'm so glad you asked me for that. Let's do it. See, what's, what's the point there? Saying that that's, that's the fundamental difference in our relationship with God. We are not just a neighbor to God. We're not just a friend of God. We are God's kids. That's the sort of access we have to them. Now, the question is, are you, are, do you have a freedom in that sort of access with God? Do you really believe in your life that you can take any, I mean, just with shamelessness, that you can take any request you have and you can beat down the door of God with it? See, and if you want to see that, the, 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 the place that that sort of access, the belief in it or not, shows up is in our prayer life. Does your prayer life have a constant pleading and pestering God in it? I mean, are you beating down the door of God as a kid to his father would? Does that describe how it is that you pray to God? See, this is what, when we say our father, it's reminding us, 
we have that sort of access. We have that sort of a hotline to God. Anytime, whatever we've got, whatever we need, we can take it to God, that sort of access. Thirdly, when we say the words, our Father, what should it be convincing us of? It should be assuring us of God's provision for us. Later on in Matthew chapter six, um, Jesus addresses this and he's addressing worry and anxiety in our life. I don't know how many of you feel that right now in your own life. There's things in your life that you're like, man, I need this. What am I gonna do without it? And so there's fear, there's anxiety, there's worry that's just gripping your heart. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter six, a little bit later on. And he says, uh, hey, why are you worried? Why are you anxious? Look at the birds of the field. They don't, they don't plant seeds. They don't harvest things. They don't store things in barns. And you know what's amazing? Your heavenly father feeds birds. Now, if God would feed a bird, how much more would he feed you, his son or his daughter? Do you see what the words our father should be convincing us of? That sort of fatherly care and provision for our life. He goes on, do you see the grass of the field? Do you see how that grass is clothed with splendor? Not even Solomon looked like that grass. I mean, that grass looks good. And if that's how your father would clothe grass, how much more you, his son, his daughter? How much more would he care for you, his kid? Do you see what he's trying to convince us of? When we are saying the words, our father, it should ring in our ears, we've got a daddy who cares for us, who is committed to provide for us. A daddy like that, it should assure us of God's provision. Fourthly, it should assure us of God's goodness toward us. When we say our father, it should be assuring us that God is big hearted toward us, that God is kind toward us, that God wants good for us, not evil for us. But do, you, do you feel that with, with God right now? That God is not out to destroy your life. He is out to give you life. Later on in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is trying to convince us to ask things of God. And one of the ways he tries to convince us is by showing that God is good toward you. He is kind, he is big hearted toward you. So ask him. And this is how it reads in Matthew seven. Starting in verse nine, it says, or which of you, if his son ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more would a good, big-hearted God toward his sons and daughters give good things to those who cry out to him and ask him for things? See, here's what you can be assured of with God. If you need a stone, he's not gonna give you bread. And if you need bread, he's not gonna give you a stone. You can be absolutely assured. When you're saying our father, you should be assuring yourself, convincing you that, that the God that you serve who is your daddy, is going to give you everything you need. Now let's just apply this to a moment, or for a moment. Because there are many of us who right now are looking at our life and we're thinking, but the Lord's not giving us everything we need. He's not doing that. Hear me. If there's things in your life that you don't have right now that you want, do you know what it means? You don't need them right now. And if you did need them right now, it means that God would have already given them to you right now. But if you don't have them, it means that, that you don't need them. See, this is part of what it means to, to receive your identity as a son of God. We no longer hold God hostage to what it is that we think we need. 
but we receive our sonship and we receive him as father. And now we trust that he is big hearted and kind. And if we needed it right now, we would have it right now. So that's what it means to receive our identity as son. When we say our father, we are assuring ourselves of God's goodness, his big heartedness toward us. And lastly, when we say the words our father, we're assuring ourselves of God's presence in our life. When you start out praying like this, Father, I mean, this is probably the way you, you would most often begin your prayer, right? Father, our Father. When Jesus is reminding us to pray with this first, our Father, he is helping us see, helping us remind ourselves that God as a Father is not going to abandon us. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Aren't there moments in your life where you feel like you're all alone? See, that feeling of loneliness is one of the greatest barriers to us actually praying to God, pouring our heart out to God. See, why would we pour our heart out to God when we don't think he's there, right? It's one of the greatest barriers into a vibrant, rich prayer life. It's just not feeling like God's there. But when we say the words, our Father, to begin our prayer, we are reminding ourselves of, of, of Hebrews 13, 5, that God will never leave us or forsake us. He will never abandon us. There's never gonna be a moment in our life if we're in Christ where God is not there, right there with us. When we say our Father, we're reminding ourselves of that. Now let's be clear. Just because God is with us does not mean we will not have deep valleys in our life, does it? We're gonna have deep valleys in our life, right? We're all gonna experience deep valleys in our life. We're all gonna walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But like the psalmist, we can fear no evil in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, why is that? Why can we fear no evil in the valley of the shadow of death? Answer, because you are with me. Because he's always with us. Regardless of where we go, what we're doing, how deep the valley is, God is always there. He is always open and available for you to pour out your heart to him in prayer. Do you see what our father is communicating? It is bringing God down to us. It's saying, this is how God feels about you. This is how God sees you. This is how God looks upon you. Our father is assuring us of all of those things. That's point one. Now we get to point two. In heaven. Our Father on one side, in heaven on the other side. These are the two foundational stones of a vibrant prayer life. Our Father brings God down, shows us the nearness of God, how God loves us and cares for us. What does in heaven show us? What is it unpacking for us? Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism describe this. And this is just one sampling that you'll see of how the catechisms, like these teaching instruments that the church has used for a couple thousand years, trying to train and equip Christians, how the Lord's Prayer is typically a big part of that. We encourage you, all of our people, to use the New City Catechism, another one of those teaching mechanisms to get good theology in the context of your family. There'll be a little section on the Lord's Prayer. Now listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says about this. Why the words in heaven? This is question 121 of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is there added in heaven? Why not just leave it as our Father and start praying? Let's get into the X's and O's. Why would we put in heaven beside our Father? Answer, these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. To not think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. And to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. 
The reason that in heaven is attached to our father is to keep us out of the ditch of domesticating God, of shrinking God down to kind of what what we can see and think about God, to to thinking, it it keeps us from thinking small thoughts of God. The, The reason that in heaven is there is to help us know that this God who we're praying to as our father is also in heaven and almighty. He is big and powerful. It's to help us see that about God. Not just that he's down here and near, but that he is up there and mighty and strong. Maybe we could get into it by by going this way. When you hear the word God, what do you think? Like, who is God? How would you answer that question? Who is God? Now, your answer to that question is so crucial. It determines everything about your life. I love, you know, A.W. Tozer says that's the most important answer you will ever give to any question. The most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Who is God? Now, here's the next question to go along with that. Who is God's the first one? Here's the second one. How do you know that's God? Like, where did you form that view of God? Like, how, how did your answer to the question, who is God? Like, where did that answer come from? Now, most people in our culture, it comes from some sort of a, uh, you know, a concoction of kind of our family traditions that we grew up in. So whatever that looked like and kind of how our family talked about God and then kind of the mix of our cultural folklore. Like this is kind of culturally how we think and talk about God. And for most people, it's the concoction of those two things that form our picture of God. So we're answering who is God from some sort of a mix of family sort of values and cultural sort of values. So let's just ask one more question. How do you know that's God? Like how do you know how you just answered God is the real God. How do you know you haven't just made up your own version of God? That is a really important question that we all ought to wrestle with. How do we know that when we think about God, we are thinking about the right thing? Here's the only way I know to ensure that is for you to open up the Bible and read it and ask the Lord to show you who he is. That is the only way you're gonna get right pictures of God. It's not gonna come primarily from family tradition. It's definitely not gonna come from our family or our cultural kind of folklore. It's gonna come from opening the Bible and asking the Lord to show himself to us. So when you do that and you start reading in Genesis chapter one, one of God's first statements about himself comes in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, God talks about himself like this. I am God almighty. And you want to know who I am? This is, how, this is how you can know who I am. Here's who I am. I am God Almighty. Now ask yourself, why is it that the Bible would put that in there? Why would God want to remind us? Why would God want to tell us that, that he is God Almighty? Do you know why that is? It's because our hearts are so prone to shrink God down into being something other than God Almighty. We are so prone to domesticating God thinking small thoughts of God. We need God to remind us of that because we're not naturally inclined to think about God that way. And God is saying, this is who I am. I am God Almighty. Now think about what, where the context of this. This is Genesis 17. This is um, spoken into the mess that is Abraham and Sarah's life. So think about what's happening in their life. God has come to Abraham and said, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you, Abraham. That is a high lofty promise that the Lord is giving Abraham. And then you take Abraham's life. So here's the promise and here's Abraham's messy life. He and Sarah, his wife, are well advanced in years. They are well beyond baby-making years. 
So now think about the, the dynamic here. You've got a lofty promise from God, and then you've got the rugged reality that is Abraham's life. Now, what happens when those two things converge? A promise of God and reality that says there's no way that could ever happen. Do you know what oftentimes happens in our hearts? Our thoughts of God instantly shrink down. What blows up in our mind is our current reality. This is what we can see. This is the, this is the situation we can see, the circumstances we can see around us. If you're Abraham, it's, God, how's that ever gonna happen when we are like 90 years old? 90-year-olds don't have babies, God. That's gonna be a problem, right? So our, our way of thinking always shrinks down to what we can see and know and, and touch and feel. That, that's the mess that he has spoken, I am God Almighty into because he knows we need it. Think about your life right now. I'll guarantee if we looked at everyone's life in, their, in this room, we would see promises of God on one hand and we would see your life on the other that's just not working out the way you wanted it to. And what we are naturally inclined to do is shrink God down, domesticate God down to our circumstances, to see God through what we can kind of figure out in our circumstances. But this is why God says, here's who I am. I am God Almighty. I am in heaven. And when we see God as Almighty, it opens up to our lives unlimited possibilities, unlimited hope. When we really believe that God is Almighty in heaven, our life becomes with the, the potential just skyrockets. It becomes unlimited in what the Lord could do with it. Listen to Marcus Dobbs. He's a commentator on Genesis. Listen to him describe this moment of God calling himself almighty. Listen to what he says. He says, I am the almighty God, able to fulfill your highest hopes and accomplish for you the brightest ideal that ever my word set before you. There is no need of paring down the promise until it squares with human possibilities. You see that? He's saying, Abraham. You don't have to take this promise of I'm gonna make a great nation out of you and pare it down to what you can see about your life right now. You can leave your life right where it is and still see that I am God Almighty who can do what I promised. Even when you can't see it, you don't have to pare that promise down. He goes on. There is no need of relinquishing one hope that this promise has begotten. There is no need of adopting some interpretation of this promise, which will make it seem easier to fulfill. And isn't this what Abraham wanted to do? So he took a concubine. He had a, another son with that concubine in an effort to help God fulfill his promise. And God's like, listen, Abraham, I don't need your help in fulfilling this promise. I've got this handled all on my own. You need to sit there and believe that I'm really God Almighty. It's gonna open up new hopes and new dreams for your life, Abraham. He says, so you don't have to adopt some interpretation of it which will make it seem easier to fulfill. There is no need of striving to fulfill it in any second-rate way. All possibility for your life, my life, Abraham's life, all possibility lies in this. I am the Almighty God. I love how one pastor says it. He says, without this almighty God, we'd constantly be in need of adjusting our expectations of life downward. Let's just take our life and let's just kind of get rid of the promises and let's just kind of deal with what we can see and kind of, you know, make happen down here. We'd constantly be shrinking our life down to what we can do. And God's saying, please, don't shrink your life down to what you can do. Why don't you trust me, God Almighty, in heaven to do what you can't do? He says, here's the effect when we lose this Almighty of God. He says, without this Almighty God, we'd consistently, constantly be in need of adjusting our expectations of life downward. 
But the Bible isn't asking us to settle for something. It holds out great promise of everything your soul could ever hope to contain. Do you see why the two words are paired together? Our Father brings God down to us. It shows us God's heart for us in heaven is showing that this God who has a big heart for us is also God Almighty, the strongest being in the universe. See, where, where our Father reminds us that God does care for us, in heaven reminds us that God can care for us. Where our Father shows us the tender heart of God, in heaven shows us the powerful arm of God. Where our Father shows us God's desire to provide, in heaven shows us God's ability to provide. Where our Father reminds us to bring our every need to Him, in heaven reminds us that He is more than able to deal with our every need. Where our Father assures us that God hears our prayers, in heaven assures us that God has the power to answer our prayers. Do you see how the two fit together? It's those two together that, that bring out a vibrant life with God vibrant prayer. See, it's when those two combine together that our prayer life stops being boring. That we actually have new hope inserted into our prayer life, new dreams inserted into our prayer life. I love how J.R. Packer says this. He says, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. You seeing that? That if we're going to pray big prayers, the only way we will ever pray big prayers is if we are seeing a really big God. He says, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. The mark of great prayers in the Bible and elsewhere is that they express a great awareness of a great God. See, when our prayer life shrink down, when we just, here's one of the ways you know if your prayer life has shrunk down. What are you dreaming about right now in your life? See, when, when you begin to pray as a child to his father, and you connect that your father is an all-powerful God, do you know what that does for you? It unlocks the ability to dream again. I, I, I would almost guarantee that if I walked around the room and we just all laid out the way that we're praying and the things we're praying for, they would be dreamless. The overwhelming majority would just have lost their sense of, yes, I'm praying to God as a father who loves to hear it. And this God that I'm praying for is, he is the God who is almighty, who is in heaven, who can do anything. I mean, this is the God who can, in Daniel 3, shut the mouth of lions. This is the God that in Joshua chapter 10, I mean, hear this. He made the sun stand still. Does it assure you that you're praying to that God? I love the fact that when we pray to our Father, we are praying to the God who made the sun stand still. I love that when we're praying to God our Father, we are praying to the God who spoke and the vastness of the galaxies were created. A sun just kind of gets thrown out in the middle of our galaxy, kind of holds this thing together for us. We serve that God, a God who can speak, just breathe life through words into a human soul and they live, who can raise his own son from the dead. That's the God that you're praying to. See, this is the first thing that, that Jesus wants us to know. We are praying to a God who is our Father and a God with unmatched power. And it's those two things that we need if we're ever going to pray rightly. Let me just apply it with this and we're done. So I think this is one of the ways that we can just kind of work our way into this. I think there's two ways. You can kind of come at it from, from one angle or the other. Here's angle number one. 
we can begin by just reminding ourselves that we're praying to a father. We're praying to a God who is big hearted toward us. Like, like we're about to end our service by praying in a moment. And let's just remember that we're praying to a God who is big hearted, who is kind toward you. You're praying to a, to a being in God, a father in God, who could not be more merciful and gracious toward you, who could not be more kind toward you. You're praying to a father who could not care more for you, who cares for you as if there is no other person to care for on, you know, in the universe. You're praying to a God like that. So we can remind ourselves of, of this God that, that is so near and loves us like that, who is also in heaven, who is strong and mighty. So we can start that way and work to, to God being in heaven. Or we, we can take it from the other way. We can start with in heaven. That the God we pray to is God Almighty. That the God who unlocks every potential for our life who can do anything in our life, who can do anything in this world. Nothing is beyond the stretch of God's arm. We can start there. We can think about, meditate upon. We have got an almighty God, a strong God, a powerful God. So we can start there and then we can work backwards. And that God who is strong and mighty, do you know, you know what that God is? He's my dad. I'm praying I'm praying to my dad when I pray to that God. And my dad, who is all powerful, has promised to leverage all of his unmatched power for my benefit. Is that not breathtaking? Is that not unbelievable to just get a sense of that, to believe that? Our Father in heaven, that we're praying to that God who's all powerful and our daddy. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment here to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful. And You know, and I, I want to be crystal clear that not everyone can pray our Father and it be true. Not every human being can do that. God is not the Father of every human being in a, in a familial sort of covenant love sense. He's not. The Bible is really clear that we start our journey in this life as enemies of God, not sons and daughters of God because of our sin and our willful rebellion against God, that we are not in the family of God, that our sin has cast us out of the family of God, that we have willfully run from the family of God. So that really that one of the ways you could frame the entirety of the Bible is how are we ever going to get back in the family of God? What, what are we gonna do if we're outside the family of God? Answer is not so much what you do, but what God has done. God has sent his beloved son, Jesus, to live a life that you could never live. He perfectly filled every last command of God the Father's. And then eventually, God the Son, Jesus, worked his way to a cross where he crawled up, crawled up on a cross, was nailed to it, and on that cross bore the wrath of God for our sin. 
all of God's pent-up wrath for humanity's sin came crashing down on his beloved son, Jesus. As Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, in a very real sense, God the Father lost his son, Jesus, his beloved son, Jesus, so that the door back into his family would be open to you and I. And now the Bible is very clear on what what does it mean for us to walk back into the family of God, to come back into the family of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us, But to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, to all who turn from their sin and throw their life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for, for all who trust Jesus and treasure Jesus, To to all of those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right. He gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to, in that moment of hurling your life upon Jesus, stepping across that decisive line of faith, he then gave the right for you and I to pray to God like this, our Father in heaven, to, to our daddy who loves us, And our daddy, who is God Almighty, he gave the right for you to start praying like that. And then for those in the room who have never taken that decisive step of faith for Jesus, man, what a great morning for that. What what a great morning for you to walk in, not being able to say our Father in heaven, and for you to leave receiving him, trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus, and leaving, being able to pray to a good daddy who is ultimately strong. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to take that card underneath your seat, fill that black section out, and check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. And we would love to start that journey with you. For those in the room who are sons and daughters of God, you, there, there's been that decisive step of faith toward Jesus. And what a wonderful morning just to, just to re-receive and really be refreshed by who God is to us because of Jesus. A good daddy who loves us, who's tender toward us, who is ultimately strong. Father, would you help us believe that this morning? Lord, would you help that soak deep down into our bones that in the mess of our sin, in all of our dysfunction, in all of our brokenness, that we can cry out to you and say, Father, Daddy. And we can know that you love us right there where we are. And Lord, to to know that in all of our situations, in all of the mess of our life, Lord, that we can cry out to you, a Father who is in heaven, who can actually help us right now, who unlocks all sort of potential and possibilities in our life. So Father, will you help us pray like that? Will you convince us of who we are in Jesus? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.